Our scripture reading this morning is found in 2 Samuel chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. And you can turn there in your Bible, or uh, it's printed for you also on page 10 in your worship guide. And as you stand for the reading of God's word, let's pray together, asking his blessing on the reading of his word. Our great and gracious God, we thank you for your word and thank you that through it we know the word made flesh. So may we be confronted this morning with Jesus and know him better and have a relationship with him deepened and as a result know more of what you mean by the abundant life. We ask for your grace in this, in Christ's name. Amen. Second Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. The king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul, that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel of Lodabar. Then king David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant? that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I. Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants, Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. As a way of reflecting about some of the passage this morning, I wanted to share with you today the story of John Faraday. John Faraday is a 48-year-old man with four children and one wife and two dogs, and he has lived with type 1 diabetes for over three decades. He was diagnosed as a teenager, and as you might expect, the teenager doesn't necessarily grasp the full ramifications of being diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. But as he grew older and he got married and began to have children and began to know what might lie ahead, he started to wrestle with questions like, am I going to be able to help my children with their college essay? Am I going to be able to be present at a wedding or to dance with my daughter as she's given away? And am I going to be able or present to babysit the grandchildren? Uh, As 
you age with diabetes, the odds for things going wrong increase dramatically. Diabetics die from heart disease and stroke at twice the rate of other people. More than 60% of leg and foot amputations not related to an injury are due to diabetes. Diabetes is the leading cause of new blindness. Nerve damage happens in 60 to 70% of people with diabetes, and people with diabetes are at high risk for gum disease. And so as John is wrestling with what his future may hold and how he should proceed, and as he begins to age and come into his 40s, he has a difficult decision to make. The decision is this, as it becomes more difficult for him to control his blood sugar, there's only one option for him to have potentially a better life. But it is an incredibly difficult option to exercise, and it is fraught with challenges and fraught with some danger. And that is to have a pancreas transplant, which I didn't know very much about. Uh, but actually, uh, when they do a transplant, they don't take out your pancreas and put a new one in. They put a new one in with your old one. Apparently, the pancreas carries out a number of functions, and for a diabetic, the pancreas is only failing to produce enough insulin. And so they put in the new one with the old one, and so, and then you try to, you hope that your body accepts that new pancreas and it begins to function appropriately and you go on with a reasonably healthy life. And so, uh, but it's, it's a road that is incredibly difficult. It's a road that can fail. It's a road that can leave you in a place that was worse than when you began. And so it's scary. It's hard. Do you make that decision? You don't really know how severely your diabetes will affect you how well your life will go, how do you come to that decision? Now, uh, I can only imagine that understanding that story in relation to our passage may seem a bit opaque at this point. But as we begin that story, I want to, to let it hang for a little while while we begin to consider our, our the passage that is before us and then to bring those things together. Frankly, I think 2 Samuel chapter 9 is a bit of an odd chapter. And I think that because it doesn't really particularly move the story forward in any fashion. That David shows kindness to Mephibosheth, the son of his good friend Jonathan, the grandson of King Saul, both Saul and Jonathan are now dead, doesn't really, whether or not we know that, it doesn't affect the overall storyline. But the author of of Samuel has considered this to be a very important chapter. He's dedicated you know, a significant portion of material to relaying the story to us. And so one of the questions I wrestled with this week was, why is this, why is this here? Why are we being told something that isn't necessarily essential to the plot line? And why is it significant? The point we're at, David is settling into being the new king in Jerusalem. He's finally achieved reign. He's no longer on the run. His, his uh, opponents have been put uh, back in the recesses, and he finally has the power and the freedom to consider a promise, a pledge, a covenant that he made with Jonathan. We actually looked at that in a sermon a number of weeks ago. It occurred in 1 Samuel chapter 20, in which Jonathan suspects the way things are going. You know, his dad is Saul, and Saul is angry at David, and Saul will eventually become angry at Jonathan. He says, my life may not be long the way the story is going. And Jonathan was right. His life is not going to be long, the way the story was going. And so he said to David, he said, Promise me this, that you will show steadfast loving kindness to my descendants, because I may not be around to do so. And David makes that pledge. He covenants with Jonathan 
to, uh, to show loving kindness to Jonathan's descendants. And so here we are, David now having achieved the throne. He has the opportunity to reflect on this. And interestingly, he doesn't even know if there's a descendant of Jonathan out there. Is there anyone left? Many of the descendants of Saul have been put to death, right? That's, and you need to know that that it would be the typical thing to do. If you take over a throne, you don't want descendants of the former king hanging around because under different circumstances, they could be challengers for the throne. So in ancient times, what's the typical thing to do? You kill them all. And then you don't have any competition for the throne. That's not what David is interested in doing. He's asking, is there a descendant left of Jonathan? And to find the answer to that, he has to call in an old servant of Saul's named Ziba. And Ziba says, yes, there's one left. You don't even know his name. He lives here. His name's Mephibosheth. And David says, okay, he's a son of Jonathan. Bring him here. Now, more cynical commentators seem to think that they see David bringing Mephibosheth into the court and they say, oh, I know what this is about. David is bringing Mephibosheth near so he can keep an eye on him. Make sure that he's under tight control. This is a savvy political move. But I think there's much more going on because David could have just killed Mephibosheth. It would have been a very easy thing for him to do. Jonathan is dead. He's not going to be particularly concerned. Not only that, who knows about David's promise to Jonathan? It was made, at least appearing in the story, in complete privacy. So no one even knows of the pledge. So I think, uh, indeed, much more is going on than simply that David is trying to be politically savvy. And what's going on here, and why I think this chapter is important, is a theme that occurs before us in verses 1 and 3 and 7. And the word that's translated there in the ESV, the Hebrew word is translated into English as kindness. But the Hebrew word is said and can be translated in different ways. And I like the way that one commentator described the significance of this word as it was used in the chapter. He writes, the word translated kindness in our text is one of those large Hebrew words that radiates a spectrum of meanings like a rainbow of colors from a diamond in the sunlight. Kindness, love, steadfast love, covenantal friendship, loyal love, and justice. It is a favorite word among the psalmists to convey God's characteristic relationship with us. It is a favorite word of prophets to designate our most appropriate relationship with one another. The story of David and Mephibosheth conveys many of these meanings. The story is better than a definition. So this word that gets translated as kindness, which is completely appropriate, really has this very large um, domain of meanings that exists behind it. This idea of covenant faithfulness, and it's used both to describe God's covenantal commitment to his people in the Old Testament, and it's used to describe the covenantal commitment that his people bear to one another. And then uh, at the end there, really the idea, the reason I think this chapter is important is because, as the author said, you know, we could come up with a definition of covenantal kindness, but the story of David and Mephibosheth is better than a definition. It's a picture of covenantal kindness right before us. See, David sought to honor his love and promise to Jonathan by showing loving kindness to Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. In verse 3, David recognized this kindness as the very kindness of God, that what he's doing reflects the character of God. Consider what that required of David. Right? Put yourself in his shoes for a minute. 
Mephibosheth is one of the last reminders of Saul's rule. As long as he lived, if Saul's allies decide to rise up again, they may choose to support in some way Mephibosheth. David's life is more complicated as a result of leaving him alive. And you may think this is all, well, I mean, goodness, he's a cripple. No one even knows who he is. And yet not too far down the road, as uh, David's own son rebels against his authority and seeks the throne, David will go on the run, and Ziba the servant will show up with a bunch of stores of wealth. Say, hey, I'm here to support you on the run. I'm a David man. And David says, great, Ziba, where's Mephibosheth? And Ziba says, oh, he's sitting at home and he's going to stay there. He says that finally the throne will come to him. Now the story, you have to fast forward a little bit again. David comes back. All the chaos has ended. He's, he's back in his throne and eventually comes into contact with Mephibosheth. He says, Mephibosheth, why didn't you go with me on the run? And it says Mephibosheth hasn't changed his clothes or shaved his beard since David has left. He's been in a state of mourning and says that it wasn't, Ziba has deceived you. I was never not your man. And it's a great story because you're left, you don't really know what happened. You're left kind of wondering. Even David seems to be wondering because he's got this report of Ziba, the report of Mephibosheth. They don't agree. And he says, okay, I'm going to split the land 50-50. So Ziba actually makes out good in the deal, which I think raises the question, did David think that Mephibosheth was indeed interested a little bit in what might come of him being on the run? That the supporters of Saul might indeed come back and um, put him uh, on the throne in some capacity that somehow it might work out well for him. We don't know the answer to that, but the reason I'm sharing that part of the story with you is I think it would be easy to dismiss uh, keeping Mephibosheth around as an easy, not a big deal. And it's not that at all. The rest of the story shows that there is some danger. There's some question as to the, the intelligence, the wisdom of keeping Mephibosheth around. But the wisdom, the political wisdom, is trumped by David's commitment to covenant loyalness. His, his, his faithfulness, his desire to be kind as a result of his promise to Jonathan. And in this he reflects God's covenant faithfulness, God's willingness to be faithful to his promise, uh, to his promises to us. And while Mephibosheth was, um, Jonathan's son, he's still Saul's grandson. Can you imagine sitting down at the table every night and looking up, and there's a reminder of Saul, the guy who hunted you like a dog and took multiple attempts on your life. Here he dines at your table. It presses us a little bit. I think when someone offends us, it's far easier to cut them off, simply to hold them at arm's length than to actually draw them near. And yet here's a picture of David saying, yes, you are the grandson of my enemy. You are the son of my friend. But I'm treating you that way by virtue of my relationship with him. Even though I don't know you at all, I'm bringing you near. I'm bringing a potential enemy near and showing you love. And David's love, of course, points forward to the love that we experience in Christ. Jesus goes to the cross because he has made a promise to the Father. And the Father has made a promise to us. And it is that faithfulness to His promises that ultimately results in our redemption, results in us being brought near uh, to Jesus. 
even though we were enemies, as Mephibosheth is brought near to David. David not only shows Mephibosheth uh, loving kindness in general, we see that his loving kindness is incredibly tangible. All of the land that Saul had, he gives to Mephibosheth, a significant amount of wealth, and he appoints Ziba to manage it for him because Mephibosheth is a cripple. He can't do it for himself. And then he invites Mephibosheth to dine at his table. And verse 11 indicates that Mephibosheth was treated as one of David's sons. Essentially, David has adopted Mephibosheth to be a son in his household. And I think that is the very reason in one sense, perhaps the most important reason would be a bit more accurate that this chapter is in Scripture. That here we have a remarkable moment in the history of the ancient world and in the history of God's people where if you look to the right or to the left to other kingdoms and empires and even to the history of Israel or even forward in the history of Israel, it's very common for an individual to simply put to death all successors to the throne. But here is David, the messianic king, the sent king from God who rules with his authority and is intended in that role to reveal the very character of God to his people. And he says, no, we're not going to do it that way. I've made a promise and I'm going to be faithful to that promise even though it costs me, even though I have to sacrifice. Then that Israel wakes, my goodness, this is somewhat different. God reveals more of himself through his king David and it it raises the question, you know, if this is what happens when a human king shows faithfulness to his promise and loving kindness to others, what would happen if God sent a better king who was faithful to the very promises of God and showed that same loving kindness, but even in a more dramatic way? The chapter begins to awaken things in the history of Israel and point forward in a certain way so that Israel, I think, will head in the right direction. When we understand the passage of David and Mephibosheth in this way, it makes us, of course, think of our relationship with Christ. And like Mephibosheth, we are brought near, we are adopted into God's family by the blood of Christ, and we are invited to sit and to dine at his table. And so we are Mephibosheth, in a sense, an enemy who has been brought near. And one of the things, I think we... uh, Boy, we tend to make incredibly light of that process, and we tend not to really understand it. And by that I mean we simply seem to say, yeah, Christ has paid for our sins, we're invited to dine at the table, we sit down and that's the end of the story. But really what we're talking about is a, is a process. It's a process of change for what has to go on for Mephibosheth. As he sits down and dines at David's table, he has to say, okay, if I'm really going to do this, if I'm going to be adopted by David... I have to relinquish the part of me that is my namesake, faithful to the line of Saul and a descendant of the throne, if I'm really going to receive and live in the kindness of King David. And of course it's a process. We see it as a process as it unfolds in Scripture, but it's also a process for us as we're brought into the presence of King Jesus and invited to dine at his table. There is that process of, oh, my allegiances must change. There is an old part of me that must be put to death so that the new part of me, the part that is actually being filled up by the Spirit of God, might have life, and abundant life might become more manifest. And this is why, in reading the story of John Faraday, I I found it illuminating in terms of thinking through this process that we go through. I told you that um, 
You know, as John Faraday grew older, it was more difficult to control his blood sugar. By his mid-40s, he was poking his finger up to 10 times a day, and his highs were getting higher, his lows were getting lower, and no matter what he did, he couldn't exercise control over that. And so desiring to have the promise of new life, to move in that direction, he put himself on the transplant list for a new pancreas. Some time went by, and uh, but eventually a pancreas became available for John, and he went through uh, that surgery. The surgery went well, and John was released to go home. And you can imagine as John awakes in the hospital, and uh, having taken insulin for three decades, his, his first realization is he doesn't need to take insulin. And he, and he starts to cry with joy. And uh, he feels decent and is celebrating. He's in the hospital for a few days. He's feeling good. And uh, he and his wife are ecstatic. And he's, he's getting ready. Um, finally, the doctor says, you can go home. And so they're in this moment of celebration. And they're packing up. And the doctor looks at him. And he says, listen, this is going to be a hard road. So at the moment of, of receiving that potential of new life in the pancreas, with the new pancreas, John doesn't, you know, he knows in his mind what he's gotten into, but he doesn't realize it. And the doctor says, this is going to be a hard road. And so he leaves, and indeed, uh, it's not very much longer before John's body begins to reject the new pancreas. And so he has to be put on the battery of drugs to suppress his immune system, and he goes through a form of dialysis to clean his blood, and he goes through forms of chemotherapy, and his 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 body is reduced to... He never imagined in his wildest dreams that he would feel as bad as he did. And one ailment after another, because his immune system is suppressed, he stands six one, and his weight would drop into the 140s. Uh, and at a number of times, he simply regretted the decision. I wish that I had not executed this decision. I wish that I had simply lived with my old pancreas. And he begins to um, think that the pancreas is failing him as he goes through these various ailments. And at a particularly down point, one night, he, he writes, uh, in the middle of the night, then I start composing a letter in my head to the unknown family of the person who had donated the pancreas. I have taken this gift and ruined it. I have failed them. I do not know the words to tell them that I appreciate their gift and that I have screwed it up. How do I write a letter to this family to say thank you and I'm sorry at once? Will it be like another death for them? Always the threat of failure. Always the threat of his body rejecting the organ. And on several occasions, John, as I told you, he regrets this decision. And he says, you know what, let's just let the new pancreas fail I'll go back to insulin and the old pancreas. I'll take whatever I'm going to get on that. This isn't worth it. And so he was very ill until, uh, remarkably, uh, one day he wasn't. It was around Christmas, and he wakes up, and he uh, he writes, I, I had a feeling that I hadn't had in, in something like six months, and I said, I didn't realize what it was for a few seconds. And then I said to myself, oh, I'm hungry. And so he, he begins to eat, and what happens is basically his body begins to settle down, 
and the new pancreas begins to work as it's intended to work. And so this long road has suddenly yielded the opportunity for new life, where his prognosis now with a functioning pancreas is far better than his prognosis as a person aging, suffering from type 1 diabetes. He receives new life as a result of the transplant, but my goodness, what an incredible road. What a difficult path. I think that is far more the picture of our path and being asked to sit down at the table of Jesus than we would like to be honest with. That we are asked to sit down, we are adopted as his sons, but as surely there is struggle from Mephibosheth in his heart between his allegiances and the opportunities of power and actually come under the, under the authority of David, there are, is a great struggle for us between the allegiances that we have and the desire for our old self to reign, and not really willing, being willing to die to ourselves so that Jesus might have greater life in us. And it's a painful road. It's a road that wounds and requires uh, heartache and discipline and humility and confession and repentance and constantly running to Jesus that we might be filled with him. Isn't that what happens when God meets us? Isn't that what God is in the business of doing all of the time, that he creates form and fills it with the substance that he deems fit for that form? What do I mean by that? Think of creation. God creates. Right? He makes the earth and the sky and then fills it with the light that is appropriate to be there. He makes the land and the sea and then fills it with the animals that are appropriate to be there. And then he fills the earth with his crowning creation, which is humanity. And he intends to fill humanity with himself, but he cannot do so because we rebel. And the story goes on and God begins to say, okay, we must move forward to the point at which I can fill humanity with myself. And that will happen progressively throughout the Old Testament. It happens when God makes himself known to Abraham and makes promises to him. And then he reveals more of himself in Moses in the law. And he reveals more of himself in David the king. And ultimately, then he comes in the flesh. And in his death and resurrection, the Spirit is outpoured and says, yes, now humanity, the form of which I've created, can actually be filled with the substance that I am. And that is the very thing that gives us abundant life. And yet we, the form, being constantly tempted to rebel, we don't really necessarily want to walk a hard road. As the doctor said to to John, this is going to be a hard road. And Jesus doesn't make any, you know, this is going to be a hard road. It's a narrow one. Not as many people as you think actually make the road. Jesus says there are a lot of pretenders. Because we can pretend at being filled with the substance of Christ himself. But often it isn't the real thing. It isn't abundant life. It isn't actually going through the process of allowing our old selves to die and our new selves to be Remade. How does one walk this road? How do you know if you're walking at it? And how do you, how do you work at it? I'll briefly, very briefly, just say two things. First, Mephibosheth becomes the son of the king to the degree that he desires to do the will of the king. As he chooses not to do that later on, his relationship is alienated. John Faraday found new life to the degree that he was willing to do the will of his doctors. Jesus shows us what it means to truly live because he is willing to do the will of his Father. And we, increasingly, we be filled with the joy and know God 
Our form will be filled with this substance when we are willing and intent on doing His will, not our own. Second, though we are introduced to King Jesus much like Mephibosheth was introduced to King David, the point of the story is that we should actually become like David, not simply be Mephibosheth. And in that, I see this as really an echo. When I read this story, I can't help but think of the story of the prodigal son. If we are understanding the grace that has been shown to us, if we are being filled with the Holy Spirit, then how will we help but be like David in the sense that we love our, and ultimately like Jesus, and that we love our enemies? You know, the radical thing to me about Jesus is not that he dies and is raised from the dead, but upon being raised from the dead is that he embraces the people who crucified him. And so to become like Jesus, to echo even the love of God that David shows in our story, is to then not necessarily cast enemies off or cut people off, but to become like Jesus and to embrace them to bring them near, to be willing to sit down at the table. And so, two questions need to be posed to you. One is, where are you not doing the will of the Father? Where is the area of your life where you don't even like to ask that question? You need to do business there. And secondly, who is the last person that you would want to sit down at the table with? Who is the enemy that you would rather have cut off and have nothing to do with rather than to show loving kindness to in the way that God the Father has shown loving kindness to you? This is what Jesus does for us. Adopting us by his blood, he invites us to his table. That process is a hard road. It requires that we die to ourselves and live to him, but the result of it is abundant life. As we go to the table together this morning, be grateful that Jesus was willing to lay down his life for his enemies, and not only not only to have your sins forgiven that you might be in the clear, but so that you might be embraced and be brought near to his breast and held, adopted as his sons and daughters. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for your love, which is abundant and deep we would not dare to confess that we understand it. But in the smallest of ways, and we thank you for a story that moves forward and continually reveals more of who you are and ultimately reveals to us the need for a king who demonstrates loving kindness despite our sin. So as we come to the table this morning, we give you thanks that our King is so gracious to lay down in His own life that we might be brought near. And I pray that each of us in our hearts as we partake would know, would know what it is to be caught up in the arms of Jesus, even as we partake on Your body and blood. Lord, we ask for Your grace in this, in Christ's name. Amen.